Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod Extra. My name is Edwina Landale and today we're focusing on media and what policymakers can do to protect it. In light of the recent merger of media giants Fairfax and Nine, this week we're going to look at waning media freedom in Australia and around the world. In 2017, the Turnbull government repealed anti-media concentration laws, effectively narrowing the diversity of Australia's broadcasting networks. The repeal removes restrictions upon common ownership of newspapers, television and radio broadcasting licences that serve the same region. Defenders of the move claim that merging is a necessary tactic for Australia's legacy media companies to survive in the face of global digital platforms such as Facebook and Google. But ultimately, Nine's takeover of Fairfax signposts declining diversity in what is already one of the world's most concentrated media industries. In television and radio, 70% of the market is now owned by just four organisations. And in print, 90% is owned by three. Media concentration, however, is not our only problem. The 2018 World Press Freedom Index lists Australia as 19th out of 180 countries. This might sound promising, but 2018 has seen a global decline in press freedom, largely attributed to political hostility towards journalists. From Trump calling the media the enemy of the people to the imprisonment of anti-government journalists in Turkey, the integrity of the media is suffering, and recent events in Australia are by no means isolated. In addition to the repeal of anti-concentration laws, 2017 also saw the Australian government draft harsh espionage laws that would jail journalists for up to 20 years for reporting legitimate public interest news stories. As the voice of corporate media narrows, the Australian government is restricting the freedom of political journalism. Achieving media policy that supports diversity and transparency will require bipartisan support and cooperation, an unlikely prospect in Australian politics under normal circumstances, and perhaps even less so in this case, considering former coalition treasurer Peter Costello chairs the Nine Board. With us today is Dr Caroline Fisher, an assistant professor in communication at the University of Canberra. Caroline is a member of the News and Media Research Centre and co-author of the annual Digital News Report for Australia. She has worked as a reporter, presenter and producer for ABC News and Radio National and spent three years as a ministerial media advisor. So she offers an incredible perspective on the Australian media. Thank you for joining us today, Caroline. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we've seen the effect of the repeal on anti-concentration laws almost immediately with the Fairfax 9 merger. But in a broader sense, what kind of impact should we expect to see with these policy changes? Well, the immediate impact that we're seeing is, 
I think, fear, <laughs> fear of what it might actually mean. And of course, at the moment, it's a proposal. It hasn't been approved and it still needs to be approved uh, by the ACCC. So uh, it's not a foregone conclusion, although not many, not many commentators think that it won't uh, be successful. I guess some of the biggest concerns are around uh, the impact that it might have on the quality of journalism, that Fairfax is a, is a long-established, well-trusted uh, newspaper brand in Australia, uh, known for its high-quality uh, in, and, in many cases, investigative work. And there is a concern that in this merge, potential merge with Nine, uh, that Nine will uh, take over sort of editorial control will have much greater editorial influence um, over the Fairfax journalists who have traditionally run a very independent, well, mostly independent uh, editorial operation. They have at Fairfax a culture of uh, staff editorial independence, which is much stronger than in, say, the News Corp um, and the Murdoch uh, newspapers. So that's where, you know, there is real fear about, I think at the moment, about the loss of uh, quality and erosion of independence. And also there's a lot of uncertainty around the impact that this will have on the regional mastheads in the Fairfax stable. So there's a, a lot been said about the major, you know, major mastheads, the, the Finn Review and the Age and the City Morning Herald. There's been almost nothing said about the Canberra Times and the many, many uh, local and regional papers in the stable. Um, the one reference made to those in the initial press conference, you know, announcing the merger was that, you know, the suggestion perhaps that they might be sold off or that they would either have to just sink or swim or that, you know, if they weren't economically strong enough to make it on their own, then, you know, survival of the fittest. Like I say, I mean, that's a that's a, a poor interpretation of what was said, but there was so little detail given that I think there's just a lot of room there for speculation about what well, what is the future of these regional papers. And I think that's where some of the biggest fear lies because... Um, the reduction in diversity and the reduction in uh, local journalism over the last well, decade of, of, of contraction of the journalism, of, of the news media industry in Australia, I mean, it's really been the local towns have, have felt it very hard. And so this, again, this further uncertainty um, about these very important local newspapers, I think, is still hanging in the air. So the first impact, I think, of this announcement is kind of, yeah, this generation of, of fear and uncertainty. You've mentioned this sort of contraction of local news media, which is simultaneous with the growth of global platforms. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the arguments that has been made for the concentration of these three regulated media types, that they're no longer relevant and they're being superseded by digital platforms. So what's your opinion on this? Do you think that it does matter that these industries are becoming concentrated? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, you know, diversity is central. Uh, diversity of information is central to people's literacy, you know, their ability to function. It's incredibly important that people receive a range of information and not all of it that they agree with. That, you know, they re receive a range of, you know, challenging information even. So um, the greater number of sources out there that are reliable, reliable information sources that people can choose from, the better. Um, it's actually, you know, yes, there is a transition towards digital, absolutely, and it's really gathering pace. But traditional platforms still dominate. TV, free-to-air, television news is still the most relied upon source of information, news information in Australia. 
You know, more than 50% of Australians still rely heavily on TV for news, more than any other source. So uh, there's still a readership for newspapers. It's not nearly as high, but TV still dominates. And whether or not people, what we call them these days, poly users, so they're, they're using many platforms uh, to access news, uh, but they'll still be using TV. They may even be reading a, you know, a print newspaper. Uh, they'll certainly be reading an online newspaper and they'll certainly be going to other online sites. So uh, their role is not dead, absolutely not. Um, and yes, it's, it's premature uh, to say that there's no room for them. There definitely is room for them. Um, and yeah, so TV still does have, have a lot, has life in it yet. <laughs> so you see one of the important roles of these legacy companies as quality sources as opposed to digital sources which have a bit less quality control? Not necessarily, no. I don't think the platform necessarily dictates the quality. So, for instance, in Australia, The Guardian Australia is purely online and, you know, I think most people would think that that was a, you know, that was a quality brand. Um, and, of course, there are online uh, iterations of the offline traditional legacy brands and and that, that trust, that reputation that um, those legacy brands like the ABC, like the Sydney Morning Herald, like the Australian have built up offline, that has transferred really well into their online presence. Um, the newer arrivals, so people like BuzzFeed, Huffington Post, etc., they are new entrants. They don't have that history behind them. They don't have a loyal following. Uh, they're aimed at a much younger um, demographic um, that hasn't got the history of news consumption yet. So there's a whole, I mean, over time, they may well build a loyal following and, and a loyal audience. It's, it's not it's not there yet in the same way as the history of the legacy medias have built up those that you know those trustworthy brands over time, um, and and Channel Nine is one of those brands that has has, has uh, got high levels of trust. So you mentioned in my intro that I work for or I'm a researcher in a group called the News and Media Research Centre, and one of the key um, activities that we pursue is an annual uh, survey of Australians of uh, two thousand plus Australian adult news consumers. And we monitor the um, the news trends and the news consumption of Australians. And we've been doing it now for five years. And it's part of a global survey run by the Reuters Institute uh, for the Future of Journalism Studies um, out of Oxford, Oxford Uni. And there's, yeah, 37 countries take part in this and we produce the Australia Report. So when I say to you that I know that TV is still alive and kicking, I know from that survey. In light of the Fairfax 9 merger, some of the concerns that have been raised are of two cultures merge in. Do you have any reflections on that? Yeah, look, I think that's actually a really interesting, um, a really interesting point that people are raising. Now, because of that, um, I went back through the data of our report for this year, the Digital News Report, um, and looked at um, people who rely on Channel 9 as a source of news and people who rely on Fairfax newspapers, so the Fin Review, the Age, the Sydney Morning Herald, and looked at some of the different characteristics around them. And I looked at issues of trust as well. And so one of the interesting things was that, you know, that um, actually Channel 9 as a news source is is highly trusted um, and equally, basically, you know, very comparable to the Fairfax stable of newspapers. The Fin Review is, is slightly higher. Um, overall, the ABC is the most trusted and, you know, far enough 
you know, head and shoulders above actually all of the others. Um, but nine and the Fairfax Stable, as far as perceptions of trustworthiness go, are kind of, you know, they're in good company. Where they do diverge, though, I found really interesting is actually in the makeup, the political orientation of the audience, of the people who actually rely on, on or who use those news sources. So when we looked at, and we did this for all news brands, but I'm just bringing these, you know, ones to your attention because of this issue. So it's quite clear that actually for Channel 9, the makeup of its audience is very uh, much further to the right and centre. Uh, so, um, you know, more than 80% of its audience um, in our survey, people who use it, identified of centre and right, um, in comparison to those who who, um, who uh, rely on Fairfax newspapers. So um, Sydney Morning Herald, Age, Fin Review, much more left. Uh, and centre. So that's um, that's really quite interesting. And so we, you know, I guess in that sense, yes, uh, the audience is uh, quite different in its political orientation. Um, and so that might, you know, that may well present challenges uh, to people. And the other thing that I looked at, because of the issue around um, the financial stability and viability of, of the news media uh, in Australia at the moment. Um, and one of the key things, of course, well, who's prepared to pay, you know, for, for the news? Well, we looked at um, um, who is prepared to pay for news and actually, um, perhaps not unsurprisingly, people who rely on TV news are the, the least likely to pay for news and Channel 9 users actually, uh, Channel 7 first, then Channel 9 and then the ABC uh, in order of, of um, least likelihood of, of paying for news um, and in contrast, newspaper uh, readers are more likely to pay for news. Now, historically, that makes... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. sense because to get a newspaper on your lawn you have to pay for it to turn on your free to air you know to turn on your tv set to watch the news at six o'clock at night with your dinner it's free uh so there's this long culture of receiving free um high quality news for tv viewers and a long culture of paying for for news for newspaper buyers um but again so that's again a difference in, in in mindset there uh that tv viewers are much less likely to pay for news and and, news, and newspaper uh consumers are more likely to so there are a couple of interesting cultural differences, I think, between the two audiences that um, that, that, that the the merger may present the you know the new the new combined owners. One of the things that the 2018 World Press Freedom Index report highlighted was increasing political hostility towards journalists. Do you see a change in the relationship between the government and the media? Yeah, I mean, at the moment, um, look, we are certainly seeing. Um, the, the effect of Trump and his negativity towards the media is actually being felt globally. Um, and look, it is really serious. One of the things that we did do in this year's survey as well was to kind of uh, take the temperature on that. And we did ask people for the first time questions about fake news, their concern about it and their experience of it. Um, and we put up several categories of fake news. So um, 
actual, you know, political misinformation such as the Russian trolling and, you know, that happened in the 2016 um, US election, uh, satire, um, mentions of the actual term fake news and a range of others. Uh, poor journalism was another category. What was really interesting uh, was that there was very high high um, awareness of the term fake news and the highest uh, level of experience of these categories of fake news was poor journalism, which, you know, which really goes to show um, that Trump's um, dissing of, of journalism and news practitioners has really resonated. And, um, and what's hard about that is, is that what he says is highly politically motivated um, and is, is all about trying to reduce the cred- credibility of news organisations that don't agree with him. Unfortunately, it resonates with the community because there is enough poor practice in journalism for people to have had experience of it. For, unfortunately, Trump's slagging to actually ring true for a lot of people. And so I think that's why it's really taking hold, unfortunately. Um, and so uh, what we found was that, yes, people's height, the mo- the the type of fake news that people experienced most was actually poor journalism. However, so 40% of people said that they experienced poor journalism um, of some kind, um, but they were most concerned about political misinformation, you know, this high-level kind of, you know, um, interference from other countries. Um, but in fact, people had, had very little actual experience of that, even though they were very concerned about it. So I guess what that says to me, to me and what it said to us was um, that... Trump has has been very successful in in reducing you know uh, in in yeah in bringing down the reputation of journalism and um, and that there is now high recognition within the public of this term fake news and equating that with 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 poor journalism or journalism you just don't agree with. And do you think that journalists themselves as well as the public have been let down by policymakers in media policy? Look, I certainly think this. Uh, yes, I mean, and, and this, you know, the uh, the removal of um, of the two rules um, that you mentioned earlier, the um, the seventy five percent reach rule and the two out of three rule, as they were known. Um, yeah, I mean, that that that's that's really serious. I mean, they were there. Yes, they were antiquated. I guess people thought that they were antiquated rules for you know that were were there to uh, control an, in an analog and mass media era, and that that uh, that they were no longer uh, relevant in a digital age. Um, how However, um, like I say, these mass media forms do still exist. Uh, so we have a, what's called a hybrid media system. It's not one or the other. We haven't. We're not entirely digital, and we, we haven't. We haven't lost these mass media forms. Um, and it, yeah, it's it's a hybrid media system um, with the continuing presence and inter, interweaving and interlocking and you know interconnect interconnectedness of these two systems. So uh, it was, I think, probably premature to to lift these restrictions. Um, because, uh, yeah, they still exist, uh, these forms. And um, and so what we have seen and what people, the critics were concerned about and why people lobbied against the removal of them was for this very purpose, you know, was so, you know, because we didn't, they didn't want to see a reduction, a further reduction in concentration of ownership. And of course, that's what we're seeing. So with this sort of interconnectedness of digital media and mass media, what should policymakers be doing to ensure that we have a healthy media landscape in the future? 
The million dollar question. You know, we've got three major inquiries that have been looking into the future of journalism and how to make it sustainable. You know, um, we've had at the moment the ACCC is looking at its platform inquiry and looking at the impact of the major platforms and the sustainability of journalism. Um, we've got the uh, Senate inquiry into the ABC at the moment and looking at whether or not it's um, making the media market less competitive, you know, and, and uh, which is, a, you know, people say, highly politically motivated um, inquiry. And then, of course, we earlier, which wrapped up this year, but we had the another Senate inquiry into the future of public interest journalism. And that one is the only one so far that's returned any kind of recommendations or findings. And I, uh, there's no one quick fix. I mean, this is a really complicated system because of its hybridity, you know, and the, the fact that people can get information from anywhere at any time from anyone. It doesn't have to be a recognised brand. It could be your friend. It could be a Russian troll. It could be um, a PR company. It could be directly from a politician. You can't, you know, it's terribly hard to regulate all these streams of information. You know, I mean... You know, they were right in a way when they said, you know, trying to regulate this new environment, you know, in some way, you know, the horses bolted. How do you do that? How do you how do you stop water, you know, running through a sieve? I mean, there's just so many streams of information out there. I guess um, some of the recommendations that came out of that inquiry, um, I think, are to do with really bolstering the existing um well-known and trusted brands and making sure that they're well-resourced and trying to help them um, find, you know, financially viable ways of supporting quality journalism. And I get one of the, I think, recommendations that came from that uh, that uh, Senate inquiry into the future of public interest journalism was very good. And it was around about um, increasing sort of or introducing tax deductibility uh, around new subscriptions and things like that. Um, and that so anyone, so any member of the public who subscribed to a news service, and this is where it all becomes grey, you know, that has its, a, a charter of editorial independence that actually says we are committed to producing quality and independent journalism. If you then subscribe to that news service, then you can get that off your, ta- you know, that you can... Um, claim that as a tax deduction. So trying to investigate increasing ways of making that attractive to citizens so that more and more people do actually pay for news, because really, unless we pay for it, we're going to lose it, you know. Um, So I thought that was a a very good idea. Um, Again, extending a deductible gift recipient status to not-for-profit news organisations. So that would encourage some more independent uh, not-for-profits to, um, again, to emerge. And they, um, again, we could, people could make donations, etc. And we could, you know, and citizens could um, use that for tax tax deduction purposes. So I think some of those sorts of um, ideas I think really could have legs. And I think um, we also know from our report that people are prepared to pay for news if they trust it, if they think it's quality. They are prepared to. And in fact, there's encouraging signs amongst younger Australians that actually there's an up, you know, a lift in the number of younger people under 25s who are prepared to pay for news. So that's great. And we have also seen, so with The Guardian, etc., um, you know, in Australia making profit this year. They had a huge membership push, um, which is fantastic. And in fact, Australians um, in our global survey, we had the largest increase in in people donating, you know, um, for news um, out of the 37 countries surveyed. So there are really good signs, actually, that people are prepared to pay for news that they trust. And we know, so amongst people who do trust the news, 
many more of them actually pay for news than those, of course, people who say that they don't trust news. Um, so I think that's something to really work on is to look at those sorts of models. Um, I mean, there are a range of other things that we could do, I guess. Um, and you mentioned earlier that there are other uh, things um, you know, cramping the style of, of free press in Australia, not just um, these sort of financial woes um, and changes to legislation, but but also around national security and things like that, that those new laws um, are hampering, you know, uh, the reporting of uh, national affairs. Now, can I say, you know, putting my other hat on, having worked for government and been, you know, a ministerial advisor and through my PhD res- research and, and other, other research, you know... Um, I will happily say that there is a great need, you know, for certain levels of decision making and and levels of policy consideration, particularly in the arena of, of national security, that does need to operate in in an arena of discretion, you know. Uh, and if you want to use the term secrecy, yeah, secrecy. Um, it really must, you know. So there's a certain level of secrecy and discretion in certain arenas of public life that are essential, you know. Um, but the degree to which uh, those laws can control what and punish and um, and criminalise the activities of journalists is, is concerning. And um, certainly the, there's a lot of activity um, amongst journalism practitioners and uh, with the Journalist Union, the MEAA, um, um, and constant lobbying to, um, to improve uh, and, you know, lessen the impacts of those laws. But, yeah, it's something we have to watch. And, and I think the world is watching. I mean, people are, you know, they, they know that uh, things are getting tighter here for journalists. Uh, so it's, it's something that, that the world is taking, no, taking notice of. And have you seen, have you seen journalism itself as a, as a profession sort of changing in a response to the growth of digital platforms and the way that policy in Australia is tightening? Uh, that's hard to say because in a way... Um, the impact is what you're not seeing rather than what you are seeing. Um, uh, so I guess it's just in the commentary, really, that I, I see it. Um, and uh, in, yes, in the lobbying and the submissions that, that journalists, um, news organisations that bandied together against the national security laws um, that the union put together, you know, that uh, submitted to these inquiries and then trying to argue for a lessening of the, of the, of the restrictions, etc. So it's, it's in the lobbying efforts, really, that you see it. Um, I guess uh, over time... Um, there were all, it's always been hard to to report on issues of national security, but there's, there's, there was always kind of an understanding that um, that there were lines you didn't cross, um, and there were ways of going about that. Uh, but there was an understanding that you and you would work together largely. I mean, no one would put Australian soldiers at risk. You know, you, you know, you don't give away. You know, the the the, the coordinates of where Australian troops are fighting, etc. I mean, there's always those sorts of understandings where. Um, the, the news media has always respected certain limitations. They've understood the seriousness of national security issues. And whether, you know, obviously the government felt that that long-standing tradition wasn't enough. Um, look, time will tell, I guess, you know, for want of a cliche. Uh, I guess we'll wait to see what, uh, what was happening and what we weren't allowed to hear about. Uh, thank you so much for coming in today, Caroline. That was a, a really great perspective to hear on the media policy of the day. Uh, You can catch us next week with our regular podcast. If you have any feedback or comments, please get onto us on Twitter. We're apps at Policy Forum, through Facebook at the Asia Pacific Policy Society or over email, podcast at policyforum.net. Thanks for listening.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.